Good morning, everyone. Happy Lord's Day. We get to uh, celebrate the resurrection of our Lord every Sunday. We're going to be going through the book of Job today. This is module two, session eight. And so um, we have a lot to do this morning. So let's pray and then I will uh, get us going here. Thank you, Father, for uh, this opportunity to begin the Lord's Day to clear away the cobwebs of what the world just intertwines around our hearts and minds every week, distracting us, deluding us, making us um, wonder about the presence of evil in the world and when you will come, when you will make all things right. And then we come and we gather with your people on the Lord's Day and we sense that relief and that joy of assembling with God's people and we receive that clarity once again of the eternal things, those things which will last forever and ever, our Savior, the Word of God, all the riches of the body of Christ. And so I pray that this morning as we walk through the book of Job, Lord, that this would be beneficial to all who hear this, particularly in light of a world we live in that causes suffering, that we might understand the sovereignty of God in connection to how we suffer and what we're to do in response to suffering. Thank you, Lord, for this time. We pray it is beneficial to the flock and glorifying to you. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So today, we're going to do Job, and I'm going to do something a little bit unusual. I'm going to read to you the first two chapters of Job. And so just, uh, I don't know if you want to follow along or not, But I want to read Job 1 and 2 and then the very first part of chapter 3 because this sets everything up. It'll make it make a lot more sense. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 female donkeys and very many servants so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus, Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. 
And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. Then the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. And his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they each came from his own place. Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Naamathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him. For they saw that his suffering was very great. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. This is difficult for me to lecture on. I would rather just preach at this moment, but I do want to go through the details uh, and understand Job. I, I don't know how any human being can read through this and not be moved to the depths of your soul. <clears throat> it is absolutely the story of humanity. It is the story of suffering, and it is an amazing account, and I hope that our time this morning will help you understand that Job is... 
It's really the seminal text in all of our Bible on understanding the relationship between the sovereignty of God and suffering and how those two go together. And if you don't understand that, your Christian walk is going to feel very confusing at times. If you do understand it, your Christian walk, you can almost be like uh, a spectator in the stands looking at yourself objectively going, oh, wow, look how that guy's suffering. Wow, he's really getting nailed. But I understand why. And so ironically, Job, all through the book of Job, will ask the question, why? God will never answer him, but we have the benefit of seeing the the full view. This is a rare opportunity to have the curtains of heaven pulled aside and for us to go, oh, this is what's happening behind the scenes. And so Job didn't have that opportunity. I I would say that Job, maybe more than uh, many other believers going to heaven, Job probably had the biggest aha experience of anybody going to heaven. Like, wow, this all makes sense now. And I've preached this and I've written this, but I would, I would assert that that will happen with every one of us. That looking back in retrospect, when the curtains are opened and we see all of God's inner workings with every piece of suffering we've ever endured, we would say, Oh, it all makes sense and it's so perfect and so wise that if I could rewind and go back to the beginning of my life, I would have God do exactly the same thing again. Exactly the same suffering, exactly the same pain. I would not ask to avoid it. I would embrace it. So what does that mean for us? That means that living by faith says that I believe in that aha moment. I just don't know what it is yet. That's what living by faith is. And so Job is just such a gift um, to us. So let's get into the, the nitty-gritty of the book. And I want to spend a little time on the introduction to the book, if I can get the, well, my little uh, remote is not working. There we go. I think I just shot James in the eye with a laser. Sorry about that. <laughs> the buttons are very close. <clears throat> so the title is Job, and... Until I was about 17, I thought it was Job because I had never heard the word pronounced before and then I found out it was Job and felt like an idiot, but that's okay. That's part of growing up. There's a tendency in scholarship, especially liberal scholarship, to view Job as sort of a play. And the reason this is a bad idea is because if Job is a play, then it's possibly fictional. And if it's possibly fictional, then the theology of Job is possibly fictional as well. Now it just becomes a story somebody made up. Um, And so we would shy away from that view. We also understand that Scripture names Job as a real person. He's a real person. James 5.11 names him as a real person. Ezekiel 14.14 says, Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would declare but their own lives... By their righteousness, declares the Lord God. God said Noah, Daniel, and Job were real men. Job begins with a story. It begins with a narrative that indicates the the real nature of the story. Um, Little side note here. I just learned this this morning. I was reading uh, on the Song of Solomon. I'm preparing to preach in a few months, Lord willing. And uh, people have, liberal scholars have the same view of Song of Solomon. That it's just a play. It's a drama. It's a, it's a fiction. Did you know that there is no Hebrew example in ancient times at all, zero, of Hebrews ever writing dramas, plays, or fiction? Why? Because they considered fiction a lie. 
And so uh, when you go to the bookstore and you pick out a book, oh, this looks like a nice story. A Hebrew would say, that's a lie. It didn't happen. They had a very literal way of looking at literature that if it didn't happen, it's just a lie. So that alone is, is very good evidence that Job really happened. Now, it's unique in all the wisdom literature, the five books of the Old Testament we would consider the wisdom books, in that it focuses on one individual, on one man, a godly man using his wisdom, although very imperfectly, to try to navigate his troubles. Who is the author? Uh, It's probably not Job. Why would we know this? Because uh, he he couldn't have written chapters 1 and 2. If he had written chapters 1 and 2, chapter 3, he wouldn't have said, uh, I despise the day of my birth. Uh, he would have said, well, I know why this is happening. This isn't a big deal. So it wasn't Job. Uh, Moses is a possibility. That's a minority view, but it's also the very oldest view. Uh, but there's a couple of problems with that. The, the Hebrew text doesn't fit the style of Hebrew in Moses' day or of the, the Pentateuch at all. Um, the prevailing view and probably the one with the best support is that it was written in the era of Solomon. There's even some evidence that Solomon himself wrote the book of Job. And so um, now uh, liberals like to say this. They say, well, it couldn't have been Solomon or somebody in that era uh, because they weren't there. They didn't witness that. Or the flip side, they'll say, uh, since it was written in Solomon's era, it can't have been real. So what is the problem with saying if somebody in Solomon's era, which would be hundreds and hundreds of years separated from Job, if he wrote it, then it can't be real. What's the problem with that? Well, it denies the power of the Holy Spirit to inspire a text. And uh, how did Moses write the account of creation? He wasn't there. Nobody was there. So uh, we would take it as probably written in the era of Solomon, maybe even Solomon himself, which would make sense because he also wrote Ecclesiastes, the majority of Proverbs, and Song of Solomon. So that would fit right in with uh, Solomonic authorship. So when did Job happen? It's a very ancient time, probably, and I I put up on the slide 1800 to 1500 BC. It could even go back as far as, uh, a little farther than that. Uh, Roughly the time of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It would probably be right at the time of Jacob or maybe slightly after because uh, we, were, we know that uh, Job was an Edomite, meaning a descendant or a family member of Esau, but still in the same era. And you have to understand, in, in our day and age, we think of eras as being a decade, right? Um, <clears throat> in this culture, when you're within a century of something, that's practically yesterday or tomorrow. Uh, that's just the way people thought. You didn't see a family member for uh, 50 years. You said, oh, it's nice to see you again. And you just picked up where you left off. Um, so uh, having it in that rough period of time is very useful for us. So this didn't take place in Israel. This is before a, a national Israel existed. But it took place within an area known to the Israelites. And I just uh, gave you a few little um, thoughts here. Actually, I don't think I have it on the slide. Um, just some things to think about. The land. Uh, there are lands mentioned here. Uh, the land of Uz, the land of Buzz. I guess that wasn't very uh, uh, creative. And the land of Sheba. Israelites knew all those places. Those were very familiar to them. They would also be familiar with patriarchal life. You notice when we read in, in Job 1, what did Job 
what function did he fill on behalf of his family? He fulfilled a priestly function. He, in an era before the official priesthood, he made sacrifices to God on behalf of his children. He was a mediator of sorts. And then we also know Job's lifespan tells us this was a long time ago. He lived 140 years after the events. Now, there's a pretty good, uh, sizable piece of evidence to theorize that Job was about 70 when he went into this trouble. Now, why is that? Because if you read the very end of the book of Job, God's reward to Job is that he doubles everything. That he gives him double everything that he had um, with one exception, which I'll talk about in a moment. But it would make sense then that he would double his lifespan as well. And so it, it would not be unusual for in that era for Job to live to be uh, 210 years old. That, that would be in the same ballpark as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And remember, this is not that long after the flood. Uh, there are still longer lifespans happening, and that is uh, completely reasonable. Job isn't portrayed as an Israelite, but he would be probably best compared to Melchizedek. Melchizedek in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, is a, a genuine believer in the one true God. Not an Israelite, not a Jew. That, that whole designation didn't even exist yet. But he is a true believer. But he would be an Edomite, a relative of Esau, um, which, by the way, shows God's grace to the family of Esau as well, um, that, that God is gracious to them. So when was it written? I, I'm going to put it closer to the 930 uh, B.C. era because that would be the Solomonic era, but it could be as far back as 1450. Um, let me come back to the whole children part. This, I, I don't have a good place to put this in. But if you read the end of Job, everything he had and lost is doubled with one exception, his children. He gets 10 more kids. Well, why didn't he get 20 more kids? Because he didn't lose his children. This tells us that his children, the sacrifices made for them were made by faith with Job and the children had faith as well because the children still exist and Job will see them again. Therefore, the children don't get doubled because they're still alive. They're just not with him. They're in heaven. So will you meet Job's 10 children? According to the math at the end of Job, you will. Um, and so that's just a little side note. I think that's a, a brilliant piece of exegesis that uh, I've read by multiple scholars. So let's look at the historical and theological themes. The righteous man, Job, he became a suffering servant of Yahweh. And I want to do this in two ways. First of all, there's Job's view of himself. And Job's view of himself, I think, is, is a really good teaching point for us because his view of himself um, was shaken by the events that happened to him, losing all of his money, losing all of his possessions, losing his family. And so his view was shaken. He had the same view of calamity as his friends. This was his theology, that suffering comes to the wicked. Now, why would he come to this conclusion? It's that generally that's what the world thinks, right? The world thinks that bad people suffer and good people are rewarded. Well, Job, uh, God calls him blameless and upright. That doesn't mean perfect. Uh, in the Old Testament, blameless means one that God has poured his grace upon. And so Job, uh, e e even it's very clear at the end of chapter one, in all these things, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So Job, in his very simple theology, says, 
I have endeavored with all of my heart by faith. I believe in the one true living God, which is interesting in an, in an era where everybody else is polytheistic, believes in multiple gods. I believe in the one true God. I sacrifice by faith, meaning he understands sin. He understands atonement. He understands the need for forgiveness. Also, the other factor is I'm the richest guy I know. So what is the natural conclusion he's going to come to? Because my faith is solid and I trust God and I have placed my faith in him, therefore he has rewarded me with all these great things. Now, mirror image that, kind of a negative image. I don't follow God. I do bad things. I do evil. Therefore, I suffer. So you see how that theology would be very popular. Um, still popular, frankly, in American evangelicalism. It's still there. So Job stands as a, as a polemic, an argument against that sort of overly simplistic uh, <clears throat> argument. So he has the same view of calamity as his friends. Suffering comes on the, on the wicked. Small problem. Job has searched his heart and his mind and he can't think of any way he's disobeyed God. He has a right view of God. He believes God is just. So if Job had come home and kicked his cat or uh, done some little sin here and there, Job could not possibly fathom that that would uh, merit losing all of his possessions, all of his family, and leaving the one thing that that was still antagonizing him, and that was his wife. And so it wouldn't make sense to him. He can't think of any ways disobeyed God, so it causes a lot of confusion. And throughout the course of Job, you begin to see that Job starts to dance on the edges of accusing God. He dances on the edges of accusing God of being, being the one who is actually guilty. And in fact, the whole last section of Job is God taking Job to court, essentially. Um, and there's this long section about, uh, Job, you can judge me as soon as you can catch a sea monster. You can judge me as soon as you can uh, hunt a behemoth, probably a dinosaur, actually. That's a whole other subject for another time. As soon as you can do all that, as soon as you can tell me where snow comes from, as soon as you can tell me why the animals do this, as soon as you can tell me all about creation, as soon as you can tell me um, how I laid the foundations of the earth, as soon as you can tell me how I created all things, then you can take me to court. And those uh, three, four chapters at the end of Job, Job just gets nailed by God. It is an absolute excoriating speech that God says, don't you ever try to take me to court again. Don't you ever try to judge God. And so that wouldn't have happened if Job hadn't crossed the line at some point. He can't make sense of his circumstances. And so Job, he doesn't think he's sinless, but he is free from moral blemish. He says in Job 31.1, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? This is, this is a, a phenomenal statement. He was a patriarch. He owned everything he could see. And if he, of all people who had absolute a- access to women, he could buy women as slaves. He could use them as sex objects if he wanted to, but he didn't do it. And he even said, I won't even look at them with lust with my eyes. And so he's wondering, I, I'm not sinless, but I, I've been moral. I have been upright before God. 
How could this absolute calamity be happening to me? So there's Job's view of himself. He's questioning many things and ultimately it leads him to cross the line into sin, into questioning God. We'll talk about the sin in a moment. But then there is God's view of Job. God boasts about Job to Satan. I I have mixed feelings about this as a person. I think uh, for Job, he ought to take it as a great compliment. At the same time, I would imagine being in Job's shoes, uh, if he could see this, God talking to Satan and God saying, have you considered my servant? And Job going, please don't say my name. Please don't say my name. Please don't say my name. Have you considered my servant? Job. Oh, here it comes. Great compliment, but at the same time, uh, it led to calamity. In chapter one, God calls Job my servant. Now that's language that we're very familiar with as New Testament believers because it's all over the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, that's rare. That is rare. That's right up there with calling somebody your highness. It is, it is a rare thing to call somebody my servant. God doesn't do that often in the Old Testament. He's called complete. He's called blameless. He has integrity. The word integrity is used multiple times of Job. What does integrity mean? Integrity means that you do what you believe, that they are not different, that you believe one thing and you do the same thing. God calls him just, calls him upright. He is said about six, seven times to be one who fears God, who fears God. And then of Job, he's spoken of as either righteous or the righteousness of Job uh, about three dozen times. So God's view of Job is quite different than, than Job's view of himself. But he is a righteous man. He is righteous in that the Lord has saved him by grace and Job has acted accordingly throughout the course of his life. Then you have the theme of the attack against Job. Satan, in chapters 1 and 2, he shows his purpose. It's to demonstrate Job's weakness and to prove God wrong. Satan's purpose is basically, you ready for this? Satan's purpose is to defend the prosperity gospel. Uh, This prosperity gospel is of Satan and he wants to defend it because the prosperity gospel says God will bless you if you do certain things, if you perform certain works. And if you don't have enough faith, if you're lesser, then God will not bless you. That's the prosperity gospel. And Satan wants to prove this to God, that Job is only serving you because you've given him all this stuff. Now, here's the irony of the prosperity gospel is that almost everyone in it, they do say they serve God because of all their stuff. That is their reason. And so in their case, Satan is right. Why? Because they're followers of Satan, not followers of God. And so uh, it's an interesting little uh, argument. I've heard a, I heard a wonderful sermon on the prosperity gospel from Job chapter one. It took me completely by surprise years ago, but the argument is solid. So he wants to show Job's weakness and prove that God is wrong. Yahweh, his purpose is for his glory and for our good. God will glorify himself. What is the purpose of making Job suffer? It is to glorify God and ultimately to do Job good. By the way, Job himself is a terrific illustration of Romans 8.28. That we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. All things, Job 1 and 2, whammo, work together for good, the end of Job. 
You go, wow, that's, that's pretty neat. It's amazing. Now you have Job's three frenemies, his uh, so-called friends. There's a question as to whether they were real friends or not. I would say they were real friends. They were, they were real friends. They were well-intentioned, but they were sort of like the, uh, the friend that five minutes after some horrible suffering comes into your life says something helpful like, well, God is sovereign and you deserve hell anyway. Okay, well, that's true, but go away because you're not helping right now. So they were well-intentioned opponents. And this is very instructive to us because they, they had their own theological systems. Here are their theological systems. Eliphaz, his basic thought is, if you sin, you suffer. And if you read through the speeches of Eliphaz, you would see that he would say, my experience teaches that sin leads to suffering. Now, what's wrong with saying experience teaches that sin leads to suffering? Because you don't base theology on experience. You base experience on theology. And so he has said, he would be, let's put it in terms we can understand, he would be the typical church elder that says, uh, because I've been around for 75 years, I have a lot of wisdom and I'm going to start, uh, I'm going to start ruling in the church according to the wisdom, the experience I've gained. Are elders ever called to rule according to experience? No, they're called to rule according to theology, according to the Bible. And so this is an easy trap to fall into. Eliphaz, hey, I've been around a few decades, probably Job's age, probably 70, 80 years old. I've been around. Experience teaches me that sin leads to suffering. How about Bildad? His basic message is, uh, you must be sinning. Uh, We don't know how, but since you're suffering, you must be sinning in some way. And his basic theological position is that tradition teaches that sin leads to suffering. Well, maybe we're getting a little bit closer now. He would put it in these terms. Uh, Look, lots of people who follow Yahweh, who who love God, uh, have told us over the years that sin leads to suffering. Now, what is that like? That um, That is a logical fallacy called an argument from authority. That because somebody who's famous believes something, that it must be true. Now, you can use those things as illustrations, Uh, We can say, for example, uh, because John Calvin uh, believes the doctrines of grace and he's famous and everybody knows who he is, then uh, that proves a certain point. But it really doesn't. All it proves is that somebody really smart believes the same way you do. So it is... It works as an illustration, but it doesn't prove Scripture. John MacArthur says it this way. He can always take long concepts and and put them down to one sentence. He says, history is not a hermeneutic. That just because a thousand people believe something, that is not a Bible study method. And so Bildad gets a little closer. Tradition teaches that sin leads to suffering. By the way, just for fun, later this morning, I'm going to quote John Calvin, who had an absolutely uh, horrible position on the future of Israel. And I'm going to quote him because he said it and he wrote it. That's his business. Um, He knows now he's in heaven going, oh, well, Israel's a big deal. Um, But just for fun, we'll do that this morning. He He is a dear brother who has helped us greatly in the past few hundred years, but it didn't get everything right. Now we get even closer. First, you start with experience leads to suffering. 
experience teaches that, that sin leads to suffering. Okay, we can dismiss that pretty quickly. We don't want to live our lives according to experience only. We live according to the word of God. We get slightly closer. Well, traditions teach that sin leads to suffering. Bildad, uh, you know, lots of godly people have said this. Well, that gets closer. Now, Zophar, his basic view is you are sinning. Uh, He just flat out says it. You are sinning. And his view is that our religion teaches that sin leads to suffering. Now, that starts to sound a lot closer. But what is that? Well, it's the same thing of what we would call Christian mythology. Christian mythology uh, consists of common beliefs and sayings that actually uh, don't have a basis in Scripture. So, um, example of Christian mythology. Uh, I preached on this a couple of years ago. Uh, God hates divorce from Malachi 2.16. That is Christian mythology. Um, If you do a better analysis of that text, it actually is saying that God is displeased with a man who hates his wife and divorces her because he wants a younger model. That's what the text says, but you can see it everywhere. God hates divorce. It's become Christian mythology. Uh, Tithing, another Christian mythology. Um, We always, I tease anyone who ever stands in the pulpit and says we will now receive our tithes and offerings because I know I've taught that and it's it's such habit that we say that and I always make sure and get them afterwards. So uh, so you've given 10% of your income this week. That's great. That'll help joyful generosity. You said tithes. It's it's Christian mythology. Um, Another example of Christian mythology would be uh, the the idea that... um, The chapters and verses uh, in the Bible are inspired. Um, I I heard a whole sermon on why certain verse numbers were more important than others because of uh, 3 and 7 and 12 are important numbers in the Bible. So uh, in any chapter of the Bible, verse 3, verse 7, and verse 12 are are more important. Christian mythology. The the chapter and verse numbers are, are pretty good guesses as to where some delineations should be, but they're not inspired. So when Zophar says, our religion teaches that sin leads to suffering, you're this close. But what's the element they're missing? The element they're missing is still divine revelation. They're missing, well, what does God say? Experience doesn't work. Traditions, not good enough. Our traditions in our, within religion, mythology, still doesn't work. We go to what the Bible says. So I find that a good lesson. And then you get to my, I think my favorite character in Job is Elihu. Elihu is angry. Verses 30, or chapters 33 through 37. He is the angry young fourth friend. And you can tell he's young because he didn't even get mentioned up front. He's just the, he's just the, the kid who's being pulled along. And the irony is, that not only is he angry at the other three because they're not making any sense, and he's angry at Job because Job is, is becoming arrogant, but he actually makes the most sense of anyone. He's a young friend of Job who gave counsel that was wiser than all the older men around him. He said in chapter 32, God purifies and teaches the righteous. God purifies and teaches the righteous. Did you catch that? His theology is is that even if you're righteous, God will put you through things to teach you and to make you more like him. And so he was against Job's self-righteousness. Instead of 
uh, Job saying, what have I done? And trying to make a list of all his good accomplishments. Elihu says, forget that. God's making you more righteous. Let that be good enough. Tremendous lesson. Now, what's funny about all these arguments going back and forth is that nobody really convinces anybody of anything. Uh, Bill Dad doesn't say, you know, Zophar, good point there. I, I really didn't ever think of that. Nobody convinces anything of anyone. And in fact, the whole book basically is a picture of a heated argument. The accuser's speeches get shorter and more pointed, and Job's responses get longer and more frustrated. Now, just to be fair, Job's friends started well. We read this already, but what did they do? They saw him from a distance. They did not recognize him. They raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. What is that? They're mourning with him. They're doing what Romans 12 says to do, to weep with those who weep. And here's the best part. They sat on the ground. They sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him. That's what they should have kept doing. They should have just kept saying, we're here for you. We, we want to be here for you. Can we get you anything? Can we help you? Can we be here with you? When somebody is in the hospital, if you're one to go visit them, don't go read them Psalm 119. Go hold their hand and say, God loves you. God is here. Read them some scriptures, but don't say, let me give you 10 reasons why you're probably in the hospital. God must be disciplining you. Uh, could you you're stepping on my IV here. Can you just get off that? What a great lesson. And if they had just stopped there, they would have done a lot better. But they had to talk. And then finally, you have the theme of the sovereignty of Yahweh. This is the dominant theme of the book. He's the creator. He's the controller of the universe. And you get to see both at the beginning and the end of the book, the curtain rolled back and you have a beautiful theological treatise on the interaction between God, Satan, and humanity. Does God ever do anything evil? No, not at all. Does he allow it, direct it, and put it within the confines of his boundaries? Yes. At first he says you can't touch Job at all. Satan abides by that. Then he says you can touch him, but you can't kill him. And Satan abides by, abides by that. Now, why does that give us great comfort? Because the forces of evil will never do more than God has allowed. Never. And that is so important because if you think for a moment that Satan stepped over a line that God didn't intend for him to, now there's a fight for sovereignty. Now there's a fight for who's in charge. And that fight never exists. So what's the purpose of the book? The proper response of the righteous man to suffering must be to worship and to submit to God. God is concerned with your trusting response to suffering, not necessarily, not with necessarily giving you full knowledge of the suffering. The proper response of the righteous man to suffering must be to worship and submit to God. God is concerned with your trusting response to suffering, not with necessarily giving you full knowledge of the suffering. Now, I want to show you something just for fun. This sentence right here, the proper response of the righteous man to suffering. You know what that just did for us? That is the definition of biblical counseling. That's it. If a brother or sister comes to you and says, I'm suffering, this is how you help them. What's the proper response of the righteous man to suffering? 
What's our general tendency? Well, let's solve the problem. In my book, Strength in the River, um, there's a chapter that we call uh, Solving the Problem is Not the Point. It's not the point. Walking through the problem in a way that's pleasing to God is the point. And you know what that gives? And I've seen this so many times. When somebody comes to that realization and they truly believe it, it's like the weight of the world is lifted off your shoulders. Because I have no need to solve the problem. All I have to do is walk through it well. And I have the power to do that. You don't have the power to solve all your problems. You do have the power to walk through it in a way that's carefree. And it's joyful. I have seen people in this church, one man in particular got a cancer diagnosis and literally just giggled like a schoolboy in my office. And I said, what are you doing? And he said, because my peace that passes all understanding has not been shaken and it's a phenomenal feeling. This is biblical counseling. The proper response of the righteous man to suffering. That's it. That's how you you help one another. Just to show you that this is a literary masterpiece, I've put up here, and I I won't take long on this at all. You can download it if you're interested in this. The literary structure, it's pretty important to understand Job as a whole. You have the disasters of Job, first two chapters, the dialogues of Job, the, the core of the book, and then the deliverance of Job. God definitely gives him a big speech, but then he delivers him. And we have to say this, uh, Job, his life is wrapped up in a pretty neat little package that before his death, he gets this double lifetime, double everything that he had. That won't always be the case with us as suffering, those who are suffering. You may be on your deathbed going, I'm not really sure why this is happening, but I'm going to trust the Lord. But would you trust me in this, that for God, the difference between whether you're rewarded in this life or the next is pretty minimal. It's not that big of a deal to him. And so our reward being in the next life, okay, that's fine. That's totally fine. So you can see that um, you have the introduction, you have then these cycles of debates, and I won't go through all of those, but they, they cycle through either three friends or sometimes two, and then at the very end you have Elihu jumping in for several chapters. Uh, Elihu gives four different speeches. <clears throat> Interestingly enough, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, Job argues with all of them. The one guy he doesn't argue with is Elihu. Why? Because Elihu's theology is correct and Job knows it. And who jumps in at that point? Who takes over the whole argument? Well, Yahweh begins his interrogation of Job in chapter 38. And I do want to read this to you because I think this is good for us to to be humble. Not read the whole thing, but I want to read a, a select part. For us to understand... The might of God. He begins in chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. And then he goes through all of chapter 38. Where were you? Where were you? Where, where were you? Verse 30, chapter 39. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? In other words, are you everywhere? Are you everywhere present all the time? Like I am. Chapter 40. The Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And look at this. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once. I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. 
Job has been humbled, but God is not finished. And like a disciplining father, again, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, dress for action like a man. I will question you. You make it known to me. In other words, God gives Job a spanking. It's pretty, uh, pretty severe. And Job says, okay, I repent. We're good. And God says, just getting warmed up, bud. We're not done. And so the discipline of the Lord, while it is painful, it is severe. Yes, those things are true. But it's so good for Job. And I'll show you that in just a minute when we get to the very end of the book. I want to show you what it does for Job. It is absolutely phenomenal. And it is the point of the whole book. And it is the most misinterpreted part of the whole book. So I'll get to that in just a moment. Okay, there are a couple of interpretive issues. We'll hit these quickly, and I want to um, uh, finish up with some lessons for us. Is this a transcript or an accurate rendering of the story? Perfectly representing what happened. It's not a transcript. It's an inspired poetic edition. It's memorable. It's remarkable. Just because it's poetry doesn't mean it's fiction. It just means it's a poetic rendering of something that's true. If you wrote a poem about how you met your, your spouse, that doesn't make the poem untrue. It just means it's a poetic rendering. Another interpretive issue. I don't know who has time to think about this, but somebody did. The sickness of Job. His symptoms were horrible sores from head to toe and he had to scrape them with a piece of pottery. So there's all kinds of uh, possibilities. Some have said smallpox, elephantiasis, a very, very long disease I can't pronounce, um, or the shingles. Well, uh, there's no exact diagnosis that's possible, so that's the correct view, um, but a lot of ink has been spilled over that. What is, the, what is the correct view? The correct view is it was bad enough that Job was at the bottom of himself. Let me put it to you this way. It wasn't a disease so bad that he was unconscious. It was a disease so bad that he was suffering with every possible exquisite agony you can imagine. And so it, it wasn't, um, it wasn't uh, benevolent, so to speak. In other words, he didn't hit his head and is unconscious for a month. He was fully awake and suffering. Now here's the, here's the key of the whole chapter. What was Job's wrong? Well, some say it was a previously hidden sin. That can't be the case because that's the whole point of uh, the three friends saying, well, that must be the case. But God says, no, that's not correct. God calls him upright um, and righteous. Others say that no sin occurred, but just a changed attitude occurred. Well, if no sin occurred, then the discipline from chapters 38 to 41 is pretty severe for no sin having occurred. Another view says there's no sin, but God simply gives consolation. My answer to that would be, have you read chapters 38, 39, 40, and 41? That's not consolation. That is the whipping of a lifetime. There's no consolation there. Here is the key. The correct view, the best view, is that Job's sin was not sin that happened prior to the suffering. It's sin that happened during the suffering. Sin that happened during the suffering. He had pride in his innocence. He said, why me? What's the correct answer to why me? Why not you? You're a sinner just like everyone else at the base of your of your character. And so he had pride in his innocence. 
but it was followed by a changed attitude. And how did God change his attitude? With a severe dressing down. That's how attitudes are changed. That's why, for example, the preached word cannot be always tender. It cannot always be soft and fluffy because you need the word of God to come and cut. The word of God basically does three things. It cuts and then it sutures and then it heals. But the cut has to happen first. There has to be that moment where the word of God is cutting you to the core. Um, Like in Acts chapter 2, when Peter was preaching to the Jews, uh, the text says that they were cut to the quick. They were cut, meaning literally to the core of their life. And what was the result? They said, brothers, what must we do? They were broken, they were humbled, and therefore they came in repentance. And so this is sin and the suffering. Now, this is the whole key to the book. Chapter 42, verse 6. And this is an unfortunate difficulty in our English translations because it changes the theology. Chapter 42, verse 6. This is Job at the end of himself. And he says, Therefore I despise myself. Now, what brought him to that point? Well, Job answered the Lord and said, Verse 1, or verse 2 now. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, and he's quoting God there. You said this. Who is this who hides uh, counsel without knowledge? And Job says, therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. In other words, I dared to ask why. I dared to question you. I dared to try to bring you to court, God. I dared to question what you're doing. I didn't understand. He quotes God again, hear and I will speak. I will question you and you will make it known to me. And so after his dressing down, Job's view of God has been clarified. He said, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. In other words, I knew God from a distance. Now I've seen him face to face. How? by the words that God spoke. And what is the result? The humbled heart of Job. Therefore, I despise myself. This isn't self-loathing. This is putting God in his proper place and putting me in my proper place. And here is the crux of the book. And repent in dust and ashes. Now, there's two problems with this. And, and I, I want you to trust your English Bibles. They're absolutely accurate, but you should have some footnotes. Look back at chapter 40, verse 4. Behold, I have a small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand in my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. What is that? That's repentance. Job has already repented. Now, God says, I'm not done with the spanking. Glad for the repentance, but we're still not done. Job has repented. That's the first uh, challenge with verse six. The second challenge is that this word for repent much more often is translated as I am comforted. Now, listen to the theology of Job. Therefore, I despise myself and I am comforted in dust and ashes. Okay, let me go back to this because I want you to see something. The proper response of the righteous man to suffering must be to worship and submit to God. Do you see that now for Job, solving the problem 
is not the solution for Job. He's in the dust. He's in the ashes. He's in the midst of the suffering. And yet he is comforted. He didn't solve the problem. He, does, he sees no solution. He's lost everything that he's ever had. And yet he is filled with comfort and joy. This is what walking by faith is. This is the end result of suffering. It's not to get rid of the suffering. It's to let it be okay. What is victory in suffering? Is it praying it away? No, it's praying your attitude about it away. That's victory. I, think it's, uh, I don't think it's a spiritual victory when you suffer and the problem gets solved before your attitude changes. That's not a spiritual victory. A spiritual victory is your attitude changing before the problem gets solved. And it's, it's, like, it's, it's like this breakthrough where you say, oh, at this point, I don't care how long this goes on anymore because my attitude is different. That is the point of the book of Job. He starts off with a, with a developing attitude problem and at the end he says, I'm in dust and ashes. My problems have not changed. Not one circumstance has changed and yet I am comforted. Yes, he repented, but he said, I am comforted. I'm going to skip over this part. There's some key passages. You can make note of those. Chapter 14, verse 14, if a man dies, will he live again? That's the hope of immortality. Chapter 19, 25, and 26, I know that my Redeemer lives at the last who will stand upon the earth. That is Christ ruling on a physical earth. After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. That is physical resurrection of all believers. Chapter 26, verse 7, he hangs the earth on nothing. When the Bible speaks about science, it's always true. In chapter 42, 12, and 13, the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. That is Romans 8, 28. For all of us, the hope for all of us. Let me just kind of summarize this. I have four lessons, and I think we've hit them all. The first one is worship in the midst of trials. I always have to smile when immature believers um, define worship as a happy emotional experience that happens to you within four walls with a really loud drummer and a band, that that's what worship is. Because Job arose and tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshipped. Worship has nothing to do with your happy emotions. It has to do with placing God properly in his place of honor. Even in the midst of great grief, I'll never forget, as long as I live, my dad told me this. If he told me once, he told me a hundred times. When you don't know what else to do, praise God. When you don't know what else to do, give him praise, give him honor, give him worship. Second lesson, God has bigger purposes, not even fully having to do with Job. What was, what was God's purpose? Didn't have anything to do with Job. God's purpose was to prove Satan wrong. Job was just the ping pong ball going back and forth between the two of them. Can I say this? When you're suffering, it's not all about you. It just isn't. Third lesson, God used it to purify and reveal pride in Job. And he made him more, if I can use a New Testament term, made him more Christ-like. And so your suffering isn't directly meaning that you're under discipline in the sense of God punishing you or anything like that. It may be, but in either case, it purifies you, it reveals your weaknesses. I said this to our elder board during, uh, during COVID that even as a church, COVID revealed the weaknesses of our church. It revealed our soft spots and we've worked to shore those up. And then finally, you find peace on the heap of ashes. 
don't try to get off them in order to find peace. Find peace first. And if God brings a solution, all the better. But find peace there. And there's true, absolute heavenly joy there. Well, I hope that Job uh, has meant a lot to you and I hope it will continue to do so. I would encourage you in times of suffering, go to Job 1 and 2. Because you know, at the very least, you can say, I may have it bad, not as bad as this guy. And so God will help you that way. Well, we're out of time. Let me pray for us. Thank you, Father, for this glorious peek behind the curtains of heaven to see the inner workings and the gears and the wheels turning of the sovereignty of God. May we suffer in a way that is pleasing to Christ. May we trust you. May we embrace the heap of ashes, as it were, and let it be okay and find our comfort in you and in you alone. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Thank you for your attentiveness. That was a lot.